said a moment ago, we move into the second half of this book today, and it begins, chapter 12 begins talking about two supernatural signs, two supernatural signs. It uses the word there in verse number one, and again in verse number three, it uses the word wonder in the King James Bible, and that that word wonder uh, is the word sign or miracle. Two supernatural signs. I want to remind you again this morning, and I I have to say this often because it will help us in our understanding of the book, that it's not written, Revelation is not written in chronological order. Remember that as you make your way through it, will you? Um, When when you go through many of those of of the Bible, especially those that are telling a story, uh, they move chronologically. You can read through the life of David like that, or you can read through the creation account like that, or Jesus' life and ministry. But this book is not written chronologically. So let's let's just do a little bit of a review. Chapters number 4 through uh, 9 have walked us really through the entire tribulation period from beginning to end. In chapters 10 and 11, we've just concluded... Uh, a, a kind of a, a divine pause where God just pauses the story for a moment and gives you a little broader picture of what's going on behind the scenes of the tribulation. So now we pick up in chapter number 12 and we are going to begin again a walk through the tribulation period. We're just going to do it from different perspectives. Uh, the first time through uh, was different. The focus was different than the last time through. And so I put it like this to help us understand what's going on. In chapters 4 through 9, we're dealing with the calendar and the plan of the tribulation period. But in chapters 12 through 19, we deal with the character, the characters and the people of the tribulation period. We start looking at those who figure prominently into it. Now, we've talked generally about the 144,000 preachers. We've talked about the two witnesses some. But now we really start getting into a more detailed uh, a more detailed look at the tribulation period. One writer put it like this. In Revelation 4 through 9, we see the events of the tribulation through a telescope. In Revelation 12 through 19, we see them through a microscope. We're covering some of the same ground, but we're going to look at it in greater detail. When we come to this particular chapter, and, and especially this first part where it talks about these two supernatural signs or these great wonders that appear in heaven, it's vital for us to have a proper misunderstand uh, or a proper misinterpretation uh, rather, and not misunderstand this. I, I was reading a there was a study that a Wake Forest student did uh, for some project in a class he was doing, and he had to give he had to give a Bible test to a bunch of 10, 9- and 10-year-old students. And so this Wake Forest student turned this in, promising that these, these responses to test questions were right. So in, in questions regarding Noah and the ark there in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, one of, his, uh, one of his students wrote down that Noah's wife was named Joan of Ark. Another one wrote down, Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Amendments. (laughs) Joshua, some of you might relate to this, Joshua led the Hebrews in the Battle of Jericho. (laughs) Solomon, who was one of David's wives, had 300, or one of David's sons, 
had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> Not even going to comment on that, right? The people who followed the Lord Jesus were called the 12 decibels, and the epistles were the wives of the apostles. I'm always curious when you're teaching, so those of you who have taught children before, it always gets pretty curious when you start asking questions, what, they, what you say and what they hear. Well, it's imperative that we properly interpret the scripture. What does the Bible say? The Bible of nowhere tells us that Noah's wife was named Joan of Arc. So what does the Bible say and what does the Bible mean? Revelation 12 is one of those important places. And, and all honestly, the whole Bible is. We ought to rightly divide the word of truth. But there have been some gross misrepresentations and misinterpretations in Revelation chapter 12, especially in these first six verses. And when that happens, it impacts doctrine in much of what you believe even about the New Testament church. So let's read these first six verses today, and you'll see it's, it's, a, it's a unique passage of Scripture. Everything in the book of Revelation, some of it just sounds out there. It just sounds out there. It is. It is out there. How many times prior to the book of Revelation in the Bible do you read these warnings? There's coming a time when it's going to be like it has never been on planet Earth. Old and New Testament, prophets and the Lord himself said there's coming a time when it's, it's going to compare to nothing like we've ever seen in world history. Well, that's what's being described uh, in part in our text today. Revelation chapter 12 and verse number 1 says, There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars and she being with child cried travailing in birth and pained to be delivered and there appeared another wonder in heaven and behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads and his tail drew the third part of the stars in heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days, or a thousand two hundred in 60 days. This is a symbolic passage of scripture that has an incredibly important meaning and it helps us understand not just the tribulation period but also helps us understand what has been going on in in history since well since man was created and then fell. This refers to that. There's a broad area of, of human history that's covered in these six verses. Let's look at them for just a little bit today, talking about these two supernatural signs. Let's pray and ask God first to help our understanding and to make his word clear to us, and then also to make it applicable to us, not just for our education, but also for our benefit. Lord, thank you for the day, and thank you for this book. And this is an interesting book we're going through. Lord, not to denigrate the rest of the Holy Bible, but this captures our attention because it is about things that we have never seen or experienced on this earth. And hopefully, Lord, uh, those in this room today and hearing us online, hopefully we won't experience these things. Hopefully by the time the terrible things take place on this planet, 
uh, will be in heaven with you. And I pray that for every person in here today. And, Lord, that's only going to be true if they know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Only you and no one else can know the motive of every person who came today. But, Lord, I pray that for the next few minutes you'd have our attention and we could be distracted by a lot of things in our life or even things that occur now. And so, Lord, during this rain, we pray that you'd keep the power on. Don't let that distract us. Those things that have happened this week or in uh, the past few weeks that are weighing on us as burdens, we pray that they would be set aside for just a few minutes so that we can be vulnerable to the work of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, let's let's jump right into this. Really, there's there are three people here uh, discussed, and and we're going to focus on two of them because we're going to get to the third eventually. Um, but there's this woman who's pregnant and in labor. There's this dragon, and then there's the man-child that she delivers. We're going to talk about them for just a few moments. Let's start with the person of this woman. The person of this woman in verses 1 and 2. We read these verses, and this is the fourth symbolic woman, or, or the this is one of four, rather, symbolic women. It's the second that we've encountered so far. There are four symbolic women in the book of Revelation. We've already met number one uh, back in Galatians chapter 2. Or Galatians. I was reading Galatians this last week. Uh, Revelation chapter 2. We read about this woman and she's called Jezebel. It's not an, a reference to the Old Testament Jezebel. It's a representative woman, an actual woman, who's been given this name Jezebel. And in, in Revelation 2, she represents paganism. And then in Revelation chapter 17, the first few verses there, there's another woman that's listed and she's depicted as a harlot. And we'll get to her eventually. She represents the apostate church. And then a little bit later, uh, chapter number 19, we start talking about the bride of Christ. And that's you and I. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior today, that bride represents the true church. But this is the second woman. She comes here, this pregnant lady. And she comes here. And so who is she? What's her identity? Who is this lady? There have been some suggestions uh, some, the Roman Catholic Church, teach that this is the Virgin Mary. Others teach that this is the church, that the woman is the church. And then still others, you, do you remember a woman? I have to look at her name because she's got, you remember Mary Baker Patterson Glover Eddy? She's the founder of the Christian science cult. She purports that she's the woman And that the man-child she gives birth to is the Christian science cult. I won't attach the name church to that because it's not a church. She would. There's all kinds of explanations out there. Let me say this. Obviously, I don't believe this is the Virgin Mary. Mary is no longer a virgin, so there's there's really no need to refer to her as such. I do not believe it's the church because if you make that the church, then you have the church giving birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that didn't happen. And let me say this. You also have, you also have uh, the, 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 the rapture question comes into play if this is the church. Because we're halfway through the tribulation period and, and the church is still being present and talked about on earth. Well, that's not, that, that doesn't fly. So we have to identify who this, who this woman is. So let's start, first of all, by looking at how she's described. Her description there in verse number one. 
Here's this woman, and she is clothed with the sun, moon, and stars. Now remember this, if you would. John is seeing all of this, the whole book of Revelation. John is seeing this as a vision, as a dream. And he's, he's envisioning here this woman, this pregnant woman, and she is clothed with the sun and the moon and a crown. Uh, she's crowned with 12 stars. Let's pause there for a moment and ask ourselves, where else in Scripture do we come across the sun and the moon and the 12 stars put together depicting one thing? Where else do we come across that picture? Go all the way back to Genesis chapter number 37, And remember Joseph's dream? Got him in trouble with his dad and mom and also his brothers, but it was an accurate dream with the right, with the right interpretation. In Genesis 37 verses 9 through 11, Joseph tells his dream and he sees the sun and the moon and 12 stars. And as you work your way through that, you come to realize that's the nation of Israel. So this woman that we're looking at, In Revelation chapter 12, this pregnant woman who is crowned with 12 stars and she's wearing the sun and the moon, she represents the nation of Israel. That is the only interpretation that will not conflict with other passages of Scripture in the Old or New Testaments. It's the only way to do that. And and you've heard this said before from this pulpit and other pulpits for a long time. The safest way to interpret Scripture is to compare it with other Scripture. So I can't compare, I I, I can't interpret Revelation chapter 12, I can't interpret that with what Mary Glover, Eddie Baker, Patterson, whoever, I can't compare what she says, I have to compare the scripture with other scripture. And when I compare Revelation 12 with Genesis 37, it's a pretty safe, it's a pretty safe interpretation, isn't it? She represents the nation of Israel. And this is not the only passage of scripture, we don't have time to turn today to these But if you want to check it out, you can. There are other passages of scripture that refer to the nation of Israel as a woman, figuratively. Let me give those to you. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 and 20. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 32 through 35. And Hosea chapter 2 and verse 2. All of those refer to the nation of Israel as a woman. The sun and the moon that she's wearing, that refers to her glory as God's chosen people. Obviously, the 12 stars relate to the 12 tribes of the nation. This just fits. Here is this pregnant woman. Here is how she's dressed. And her clothing points to her being the nation of Israel. Let's move to verse number 2 and talk about not just her description, but her destiny. Her destiny. What was she brought forth to do? The Bible says that she is in labor. Did you see that? Travailing in birth, pained to be delivered. This is hard labor. This baby's about to be born. This is not the early stages of the pregnancy. This is the end of the third trimester. And she's bringing forth this man-child. Look what it says there in verse number two. She being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. And in verse number five, she brought forth a man child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Verse five says that this child is to rule all nations. Well, that's referring to Messiah. That's not hard to see, is it? Old or New Testament again. It's not hard to figure out. Here's the nation of Israel giving birth to Messiah, Jesus Christ. This 
picture of Israel in childbirth reminds us that it was that nation that God was going to choose to bring his son into the world. Jesus was a Jew. Why is it so important uh, that we make that that we make that analogy? Is because Jesus was Jewish by birth. He was Jewish by culture. And so it's imperative that Christians today stay strongly supportive of the nation of Israel. Don't, don't let any president, senator, congressman, dog catcher, don't let any person walk us away from our support of the nation of Israel. Thousands of years ago, 4,000 years ago, God said to Abraham, I will bless those that bless you. And then that ominous and equally true promise, I will curse those that curse you. Well, Jesus is born to the nation of Israel. He's brought forth. Isaiah chapter 26, verses 17 and 18. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 7 through 9. Jeremiah chapter chapter 4, verse 31. All of them prophesy that the Savior of the world would be born through the nation of Israel. He is Jewish by birth. In fact, when you read Matthew chapter 1, the, uh, the very first chapter, Matthew 1, verse 11, it says this. It says that Jesus was the son of David and the son of Abraham. You don't get a whole lot more Jewish than that. The son of David, their greatest king, the son of Abraham, the founder of the Jewish nation. If you want more scriptural proof, that this is Jesus Christ, look at Romans chapter number 9, verses 4 and 5. Romans 9, 4 and 5. Who are Israelites, Paul wrote, to whom, talking about Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came. Of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God-blessed forever. Amen. Scripture says, of whom, Israel, of whom, concerning the flesh. Now, we recognize that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was not born as a son of Joseph. But he came through a Jewish woman as a Jew. So he says, of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. So this expectant lady, this pregnant lady in Revelation 12, she's Israel. The baby that she gives birth to represents the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the person of this woman. That's who she is. Now let's talk about the persecutor of this woman. Here's where it gets, we can relate, can't we? Um, half in this room better than others. You can relate to pregnancy and travailing and labor and delivering. You can relate to that. Here's where it starts to get a little crazy, doesn't it? Without being disrespectful of the word, it just, look what it says in verse number three. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Well, now it takes a little bit of a turn. We're talking about this dragon, so let's just jump, let's jump right into this dragon. What's going on here? Who is this? Um, has anybody ever seen a dragon? I haven't. Only in sci-fi movies and cartoons. So what is being described here? Let's talk 
first of all, about the personality of that dragon. In verse number three, that's quite a description, isn't it? Read down through the, read down through the words in verse three. It says, first of all, that he's red. He's a red dragon. Um, the color of blood, the color of war. Remember the red horse that we, the four horses of the apocalypse? The red horse is the horse of war. This dragon is a killer and he's bringing destruction with him. It also says that he is a dragon. Dragons, the best way to describe them are winged serpents with legs. Their body looks like a snake. They've got wings generally. You've all seen Shrek. You know the movie. Uh, there's winged, there's a winged uh, snake-like creature, and he's got four legs. And we know from this word, we know that this word tells us this is the devil. Now, let me ask you, is this saying that this is how the devil appears? I don't think so. I think, I think the Holy Spirit is drawing a picture of terror here. Because the devil takes on different forms, doesn't he? And we know that he can appear as an angel of light, Paul wrote in one place. So is this how he goes around? I don't know that. He's just being described here to tell us the part that he's playing in what's being described. And it says that he, he is a dragon. In 12.9, if you're doubting who this is, go down to chapter 12 and verse number 9. And we know it doesn't get more plain. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, called the devil, and Satan, The Holy Spirit is saying, do you know who I'm talking about yet? (laughs) The devil, Satan. He's saying it plain for us. So this dragon represents Satan. It says, and again in verse 3 or verse 4, it says, he has seven heads. I I believe that is telling us, it's pointing us to his intelligence. He's not omniscient, but he's pretty smart. He uh, He knows things. In fact, can I tell you this? He was created by God as a super wise being. Listen to what it says in Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 12. It's describing the devil before he fell. What was his name before he fell? Lucifer. That was a God-given name to a created archangel, Lucifer. And Ezekiel 28 describes him like this. Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Full of wisdom. He didn't get stupid when he fell. In fact, for the last, I don't know, 10,000 years, he's been studying human psychology and human nature. Does he know everything there is to know about you personally? No, he's not God. He's not omniscient. Does he know a lot about you as a human being? Absolutely. He is full of Wisdom. I think the seven heads are telling us how smart this guy is. And then it says he has ten horns. In the Bible, you may already know this, but Old and New Testament, horns represent power. The horns of the altar. They always represent power. And just like he's not all-knowing, he's certainly not all-powerful, but he is powerful. He does have, he does have some ability to him. And it says that he has ten of these horns. I remember when the European Union, and some of you do too, some of you remember when the European Union was formed, everybody said, those are the ten horns, right there it is. Those ten horns may or may not refer to a ten-nation kingdom that appears in the last days. But it can't be the European Union today, because the European Union today has over two dozen members, 27, 28 members. 
So I don't know that it's a European Union, but those ten horns may refer to a ten nation, a ten nation kingdom, or they just may be, they just may show how much power this creature, this devil has. He has seven heads, ten horns, and on those heads he has seven crowns. Crowns represent authority in the scripture. And you know, 2 Corinthians refers to Satan as the God of this world. He is having his way in this world for now. So this, this great red dragon appears. Seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns. That's what he, that's his personality. That's, that's what he looks like. That's who he is and what he's about. The first part of verse number four tells us not about the personality, but about the pollution. The pollution of this dragon. What did he do? It says in the first part of verse 4, His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to earth. You know what happened when Satan got lifted up in pride. The Bible says that one-third of the angels that God created, one-third of the angels followed him in that rebellion against God when he got lifted up in pride and he said, I will ascend to the throne of God. God said, no, you won't. And they were cast out. It's describing Satan's fall. You can read about this. Again, we don't have time to turn there. Ezekiel chapter number 28, verses 12 through 15. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Pride led to his rebellion. One-third of the angels followed him. We're talking about a powerful angel. He was the ranking angel in heaven. No other angel has, no other angel like Lucifer has such a detailed description giving, uh, given to him. We know some things about Gabriel and what he does. We know some things about Michael and about what he does. But we know much more about Lucifer as far as a detailed description of his creation and his ministry in heaven or his service to God in heaven before he fell. But when he fell, God took away that name Lucifer and gave him the name Satan. He was cast out of heaven, and in his rebellion and in his fall, one-third of the angels came with him. How many is that? We don't know. Probably in the millions. One-third of them. Now we call them not angels, but demons. And the Bible says they were cast out with him. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, it says that these demons are doing the devil's bidding. So Satan was kicked out of heaven... Uh, he was t- his place was taken away from heaven, but he still has a kingdom over which he rules supernatural beings, and he polluted them. It's why sin ought not to be tolerated in your life, because one angel's sin led to the destruction of thir- a third of all angels. And so in your life, don't let sin get a grip. Don't let sin take root, because it will infect the rest of your life. In a church, don't let... Don't let sin take place in a church. Don't let sin take root in a church. It'll infect other church members. That's why we're called to live the way we're called to live. Well, Satan got lifted up in pride, and in his fall, he polluted and took with him one-third of the angels in heaven. What are his plans? His plans are revealed in the last part of verse number 4. He's standing there. Almost like the doctor waiting to deliver a baby, he's standing there waiting for that lady to to give birth because he wants that baby destroyed. It says that in verse number four, doesn't it? He stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child, 
as soon as it was born. Now, immediately, your mind is running to King Herod at the birth of Jesus Christ, isn't it? When King Herod found out that the king of the Jews had been born, he sent the wise men. He said, go go find him. Go find him and, and let me know where he's at and I'll worship him. He had no intent whatsoever of worshiping him. And you know he made the decree to kill all of the children in the region of Bethlehem, all of the male children under the age of two. And our mind goes to that when we see him waiting for this nation to be, uh, this baby to be delivered from, from this woman. Our mind goes to that. But you know, and I know, Satan was trying to destroy Messiah long before his birth at Bethlehem. Consider this. <clears throat> he tried corrupting the human bloodline by having Seth's godly line intermarry with Cain's ungodly line. Satan was working all this back in the early chapters of Genesis. He had been told in chapter 3, there's going to be the seed of the woman that comes to crush your head. And immediately he set out to begin plans, making a, a way that he could destroy that woman's seed. He started right away with another, the third son of, of Adam. But he didn't know about Noah and the ark that were going to come and preserve a godly a godly heritage. He tried again by creating conflict between Esau and Jacob, and Esau had it in his heart to kill Jacob, through whom Jesus Christ would eventually be born. But Satan didn't know that God was going to help Jacob escape from his brother's murderous plan. So Satan tried again by killing off all the baby boys in Egypt, Pharaoh gave that command. These people are too great. They're going to overthrow us. Take all the males, chuck them in the river. That didn't happen. He didn't know, Satan didn't know that God was going to divinely protect Moses and the children of Israel would eventually return to their land. He has tried since the beginning of man to destroy the coming of Messiah, but it just doesn't work. Every attempt he's made has failed because of God's plan. It's always going to, it's always going to pass. God's plan is always going to come to pass. Here's this dragon, and you can see him just waiting. This woman's in pain, her water's broke. Boy, this is this baby's about to be born. And when it comes, we're going to devour that child. We're going to get rid of that Messiah. We're going to stop Calvary. You see, because he's not just after he's not just after the Lord Jesus. And this child of this woman, he's after you. We'll talk about him a little bit later. He is a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. That verse is not talking about Jesus Christ. It's talking about you and me. Well, God foils his plans because he's protecting his, he's protecting his own. So the person of this woman, that's Israel. And the child she delivers is the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's the persecutor of this woman, and she is uh, she is being hounded by this great red dragon. Number three, the progeny. You like my p words so far? This is good. The progeny of this woman. This girl. That this woman gives birth to this to this man child. Let's turn our attention to him for a moment. That's where our attention ought to stay. Anytime we open God's Word, somehow we ought to end up with our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it gets there in verse number five. She brought forth a man child who was to rule all nations with the rod of iron and her child was caught up unto God to his throne. Let's talk about him for a moment. His description. 
his description. He's called a man-child that came into the world and he's delivered. Did you notice that? He's delivered by a woman. He came into this world just like every other baby except Adam and Eve. Every person that's been born came by way of a woman. He came from his mother's womb. But unlike any other child that has ever been born, he was born without a human father. He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, and when he was born, he literally became God in the flesh. What an amazing thing. How do you explain that? How do you explain that the creator of the world takes on a body like you have that is subject to pain and illness and weariness? How do you you describe that? I don't know how to describe it, but that's what happened. God became flesh. He was literally... God, it's clear this man-child that's born here, and in verse number five, it's described as it describes us and points us to he's Jesus. His description. What's his destiny? His mom had a destiny. What was the mother's destiny? To bring forth Israel's destiny was to bring forth Messiah. What's this one's destiny? It says there, it tells us what it is. Who was to rule the nations with a lot of iron. He's going to rule. That's his destiny to do that. This is a fulfillment of the, of the prophecy that takes place in Revelation chapter 19 and verse number 15. He's going to rule. This is why, uh, this is why he was born. He's going to rule for several reasons. One, he's going to rule because this is his world. He created it. Colossians chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17 says all things were made by him. He's going to rule because he created the universe and everything in it and it's it's his. He's going to rule because he redeemed this world with his blood. Not only did he create it, after sin marred everything in it, he bought it back and he did so with his blood. Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 9. And then finally he's going to rule because he's... He's the only one worthy to rule. He's the only one that can. You can't. I can't. But he can. Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 11. His destiny is to rule this world. She brings forth this man child. And here he is. And he's come to rule the world. But there's that dragon. And that dragon's waiting for him. When he comes, I'm going to get him. When she delivers, I'm going to snatch that baby up. That's not at all what happened. It says there in verse number 5, And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. This is his deliverance. He's He's seen as being caught up to God. Now you and I both know that he came and when he was born on the planet, he lived for a little over 33 years. He wasn't immediately caught up from birth. But the symbolism here is that yes, he died, but he did not stay dead. Do you remember the very opening of the book of Revelation? It was now six months ago. But do you remember the very opening of the, of the book when Jesus describes himself in Revelation 1.18? He says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. He's caught up. He's delivered. He's rescued. He's not going to stay. He's not going to stay dead after his resurrection in Acts 1. The Bible says he ascended back to heaven. And we know Paul says he sat down at the right hand of his father in Hebrews chapter 1 and in Hebrews chapter 10. But he's not going to stay there forever. He didn't come here to stay forever. He ascended back to heaven, but he's not going to stay there forever. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that he's coming back. Why is he coming back? To rule 
all nations with a rod of iron. He's coming back. This is, this is a very easy to see plan of God laid out throughout scripture and God's not wavering one bit from any of it. When he comes back, that title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords that you and I are familiar with. If I said King of Kings today, if I asked any of you, who's the King of Kings? You'd, you'd say Jesus. If I said, who's the Lord, capital L, of lowercase l, lords, you'd say Jesus. But if you go outside of these walls, people aren't that quick to acknowledge that. One day they will. One day every knee, the Bible says, will bow and every tongue will confess. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. This is this woman's progeny. This baby that was delivered is the Messiah. The last part of this, verse number six, this is our last Thing, then we'll be done. The protection. The protection of this woman. Not only is that child delivered, the Bible says he's snatched up and taken to heaven, back to God and to his throne. But also, I want you to note in verse 6, the protection of this woman. It starts off talking about her distress in verse 6. And the woman fled. Did you see that? She's fled because that, that man child's been taken back to heaven. That dragon then turns his attention on the woman. Who's the woman? The nation of Israel. Let's talk about her distress. She flees from this dragon, the Bible says, to the wilderness. And this is, a, this is an indicator of, Israel's, uh, of Satan's hate, rather, for Israel. He hates that nation. I mentioned earlier that he has tried to destroy Israel, tried to destroy the Messiah, and I think if you're honest, and if world historians would be honest, they could go back through the, they could go back through world history, and I think they would find that there has never been a nation in history that has faced what the nation of Israel has faced as far as persecution or hatred. The attempts of genocide on the nation of Israel are incredible, if you would stop to think. There's not another nation on the planet whose who's been the target of genocide like Israel, most recent and most distant. I mean, do you, do you remember um, all the way back in the book of Esther? We like Esther. It's a love story. It's a great story. There was a satanic attempt at genocide of the nation of Israel in the book of Esther. Our most recent, is, our most recent example would be, of course, Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany back in the 1940s. There's a, there's a, um, there's a quote at the, US, uh, at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. There's a plaque, and I, I copied down what it says on this plaque. It says, it is unclear when exactly Hitler decided to murder Europe's Jews. The decision was probably made in 1941 with the invasion of the, of the Soviet Union. On January 20th, 1942, Reinhard Heydrich, chief of Germany's secret police, held a secret meeting known as the Wannsee Conference. Leading police and civilian officials discussed the continuing implementation of their plan, the final solution. The Nazi leaders envisioned killing 11 million Jews as part of the final solution. They succeeded in murdering six million Jews. That's an incredible, that's an incredible statement. Don't, 
don't let people rewrite history and tell you that the Holocaust is a made-up myth. It's just an ongoing satanic uh, onslaught against the nation of Israel. And yet Israel has survived every one of those attacks because of God's divine protection on this nation. There's not, I mentioned this recently to you. There's not another nation in world history that the nation has been dissolved and the language has died and then it came back like the nation of Israel. The country reborn and the language reborn. That's not found in any place else in world history. God's not done with the Jew. And the hatred toward the Jews, and you see it every once in a while in the news. You, you hear about it. And the digs at Jewish people. That hatred is just going to continue. It's not recent. It's not a new development. It's going to continue. And in fact, during the tribulation period, it's going to intensify. And during that, during that time, this woman, in verse 6, is going to flee into the wilderness, the Bible says. She's fleeing from the persecution that the Antichrist is going to spearhead. And when it comes, they're going to seek refuge. And if you want to, I, I don't, if you're taking notes or if you write in your Bible, next to verse number 6, you ought to write down Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 22. God's going to protect the Jews during that time. For the last half of the tribulation period, they're going to be at this divinely appointed and prepared refuge, and they're going to survive the Antichrist's attack. It's going to get worse for the Jews, but they're going to survive. Satan hates them. He's been trying for thousands of years to do it. Why does he hate the Jews? Why does he hate the nation of Israel? First of all, because she's a constant reminder that his power is limited. When he sees Israel, all he sees is failed attempt after failed attempt after failed attempt to destroy that nation. And it just reminds him, he doesn't get to do whatever he wants to do. God keeps saving the nation, and so he doesn't get to have his way. The second reason he hates the nation of Israel is because I think it reminds him of the favor he used to have from God. He used to be. In God's great favor. Read what the Bible says about him back in the books of Ezekiel and Isaiah before the fall. He had a, he had a high position, if not the highest among every angel. I think the nation of Israel, now as God's chosen people, remind him there was a time when he was God's chosen angel. And he hates Israel for it. So her distress is caused by this dragon that's going to pursue her with the intent of destroying her still. Then her deliverance. The Bible says that she's going to find refuge in the wilderness. Many people believe, let's, let's just see how, why, where do people generally believe that's going to take place? You've heard that place before? Petra, in, in Petra. Are you Indiana Jones fans? Remember version number three? Oh, they go riding into they go riding into the ancient ruins of Petra. Many people believe that's where they're going to go. This place is a city. It's carved into the rocks. It's it's got a uh, it's got a three quarter mile long. The only entrance to it is called the Seek, and, it, and the only entrance to it is three quarters of a mile long. It's very narrow, and it places it's sur- it's surrounded by walls that tower over two hundred feet tall. Getting to it is ridiculous. Now, I don't know if that's the place they're going or not, but many people think that's where they're going. 
There was an American evangelist that lived, uh, lived a long time ago. His name was William Blackstone. He lived from 1841 to 1935. He was so certain that Petra would be the place where Israel flees during the tribulation period, that in the early 1900s, evangelist Blackstone spent $8,000 having Bibles hid all through the caves throughout Petra so that when they get to Petra during the tribulation period, the Jews would, uh, the Jews would have the word of God and be able to figure out what's going on. You know, he... We don't know much about, we don't hear much about him, but did you know that he started pushing in the United States, he started pushing for the rebirth of the nation of Israel in the early 1900s, actually the late 1890s. He is, he is one of the most prominent Americans that figure in to the rebirth of Israel in 1948. Thirteen years after he died, Israel became a nation again, but he was working Uh, with those in our government and those in the United Kingdom. He was working to see Israel brought back to a a nation. You ought to read about this evangelist, William Blackstone. It's an amazing story. The links that he went to. Great hero among Jewish people. So I don't know if it's Petra or not. But wherever it is, it's a place where God is going to divinely protect him. It says in verse number 6 where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. The question comes up, who's they? Who's going to be feeding them? I don't know. Do you? I don't know who's going to be feeding them. But somebody's going to be taking care of them for 1260 days or three and a half years. I don't know if it's people who are friendly to Israel. Maybe it's Gentiles not being persecuted, but they're on their, maybe they're converted Gentiles and they're on Israel's side. Maybe they're getting food to them. I don't know. Maybe it's like Elijah back in the Old Testament. God used the ravens to take food to him. I don't know. God can do, the great thing about the God you and I serve is he can do whatever he wants. If he feels like creating food in those caves, he can do that too. Or he can get birds to take it to him. Or he can use uh, other tribulation saints to help him. But when the tribulation ends and Jesus Christ does finally return, there is going to be a a remnant of Jews that have been divinely preserved and protected. And that's what verse number 6 is talking about. If you look at these first six verses of Scripture, they take us all the way back to the beginning of human history, all the way to the end of of the, the tribulation period. They show us how, how Satan has been. They point to the, the attacks that Satan has, has uh, uh, pointed toward the nation of Israel. And they take us all the way to the end of this. Did you know that the Talmud says that Jews are not only obligated to believe in Messiah, but they are to yearn for his arrival? This is what it says. This is the creed that traditional Jews are ordered to say, I believe with perfect faith in the advent of the Messiah, and though he may tarry, I will await his arrival every day. During the Jewish tradition of Passover, one uh, one, uh, tradition that the Jews have is to leave a door open in their house for the arrival of Elijah the prophet, because scripture says that Elijah is going to precede the coming of of the Messiah. 
So they leave a door open for Messiah. What today's Jews fail to understand is that Messiah has already come. Elijah's already come. John the Baptist has already been here preparing the way of the Lord. He's come and he died. But John 1.11 says he came to his own and his own received him not. They're, They're bound by their own law to look for and anticipate the return of Messiah, the coming of Messiah. Though he may tarry, I will await his arrival every day. Messiah did come, and he died on a cross to pay for their sins, and he rose again on the third day, and the Bible says then he was caught up into heaven, where he now is awaiting the Father's command for him to return to earth and set up his rule and reign here. Messiah has come once, and they missed him. When he comes again, they will not miss him. Messiah is coming, Jesus is coming, and that's the truth being emphasized here. God has a plan for the ages, and that plan is going to be worked out in his time. I wish Jesus would come today, but if he doesn't, it's because that's not God's plan. He is going to be right on time. And I know this is a short passage of Scripture, and it's kind of a different passage of Scripture. So let me close with this thought to you, Christians and lost people. You might be here without the Lord Jesus Christ, and you don't know Jesus as Savior. May I close with this thought as to why we turn to a passage of Scripture, and we limit our focus this morning to these six verses. We'll get into the rest of the chapter tonight, but why these six verses? Here's the thought. The revelation of Jesus Christ, this book, This last book of the Bible, it is not merely for education. It is for conviction for the unsaved and motivation for the saved. It's not meant to merely blow up my understanding of the Bible. It's not meant to give me more understanding of the end times. It's not to make me smarter. If I'm a child of God, if I'm saved, this is given to me to motivate me to share the gospel with people and to get the gospel to the world. I can share the gospel here in Jeff City. But I can't go around the world, so I participate in our missions outreach. I am evangelizing people on the other side of the world, even right now, because I'm supporting missionaries going there, and I'm praying for them that God will bless their church and bless their ministry and help people to be saved. And they are, Paul says, they are fruit counted to my account and your account. I don't push, we don't push faith promise missions here so that we can get more money at Faith Baptist Church. We don't need it. This is God's church. He's going to take care of it regardless. The reason reason we believe in and practice the missions, global missions emphasis that we do is because we are commanded by God that while we're telling people about Jesus here to make sure the rest of the world is hearing about it. It makes no sense at all for me to tell people and you to tell people in America about God and about Jesus and about salvation and just wait till everybody in America is saved, and then we'll go tell other people about Jesus. That makes no sense at all. Do you know how many billions of people are going to die never hearing the name Jesus if we do that? They're already dying. So this, this book is given to us to motivate us Christians. And then if you're here today and you don't know for sure that Jesus is your Savior, you don't know for sure. Let me, let me say it another way. You don't know for sure. That if your life ended today, and it could, that you would go to heaven when you die. This book is given so that you'll understand at any given split second, you could go off into eternity. And if you die, I I have Roman Catholic friends that I know and love 
But I do not agree with them one bit about the, uh, the concept of purgatory. Listen very carefully. This is the Bible truth. It's not my opinion or the opinion of Faith Baptist Church. It's the Bible truth. If you die without Christ, you will not be saved. Never. There was a rich man in the book of Luke, in the gospel of Luke, and he understood this. And when, when he, the, the Bible says he died and went to hell, Lazarus, this beggar that sat outside his place, died. He believed in Jesus Christ. He went to heaven. The Bible says this in hell about that rich man. Go read this. I think it's Luke chapter 16. Read what he says when he's talking to Abraham. Read what he says. You know what he he never asks for when he's in hell? Have you ever read that story? You know what he never asks for? He never asks to be delivered from it. Do you know why? Because those people in hell know there is no chance. What was it that he asked for? He asked for a drip of water first. Would you just let Lazarus dip his finger in water and come? I'll take a drop, please. If I could just get a drop. That's how great his torment was. The second thing he asked for was for somebody to go and tell his brothers how to miss that place. But he never asked to be delivered. I'm telling you the truth this morning. I'm not being hateful. I'm not being, in fact, I'm saying this in love. If you die without Christ, you've missed every chance in the world that you have to be saved because nothing in eternity is going to change for you. Now, the flip side of that is if you die knowing Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and you go to heaven, you will never have an end to that eternal life and that eternal rest. It will be perfect forever. It is the exact opposite of what hell will be forever. Everything that is bad in hell is right in heaven for eternity. You get to heaven, you're there for eternity. No more sin. The Bible says this. It doesn't doesn't say no more darkness. It says this. No more night. Everything is light in heaven. What, What a wonderful picture of that. No shadows. Everything is in the light. No sin, no suffering. Hell is the other way. I heard one preacher, his name was Dan Broaddus. He described hell like this. You're always burning to death, but you never die. Now, in my human brain, I I can get that. I understand that. I can't understand eternal torment. But if you say, well, it's like always burning to death, but never dying. That's hell. You can miss it. The reason God gives us the book of Revelation is not for our education. It's for a Christian's motivation, and it's for a non-Christian's conviction. Come to Christ. That's the message. That's why when he closes out the book, and eventually we're going to get to Revelation 22, that's why at the end of the book, you're reading this. Come. Just come. Are you thirsty? Come. Spirit says come. The bride says come. If you're thirsty, come. Adrian Rogers, I I love the way his, his invitations were so simple at his church every time at the end of his sermon. Didn't matter what he's preaching. Come to Jesus. That's what the scripture's calling you to do. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, come. You say, well, I'm only 15 years old or I'm only 30 years old. I, I'm going to think about doing that. As a police chaplain, I've gone to the car wrecks and I've gone to the overdoses and I've gone to the mis, the mis- shootings of teenagers, those whose ages end with the word teen. So it's not just gray, old-headed, sick people that die. Don't put this off. Paul said, now is the accepted time. 
Now's the day of salvation. If you don't know Christ, be saved. There's, there's no reason to wait. You've got everything to gain and nothing to lose. Don't wait here. Gain it in Christ. Would you stand please with your heads bowed? Father, thank you for your word. I shudder to think that people could come and we're looking at this book and it's telling us truth about the end times and people would come and sit and, and walk out of here uncertain if they're saved or not. Lord, you told us that our life on this earth is like a vapor. It appears for a little while, then it vanishes away. You told us not to boast about tomorrow because we don't know what's going to happen today. And so, Lord, for those who don't know for sure that they're Christians and saved today, they may be Christian in their actions, but, Lord, they don't know for sure if they would die, would they go to heaven. I pray for that person, young or old, man or woman, young lady, young man. May it be settled in their hearts today. These are terrible times coming, not just for Israel, but for the world. So, Lord, help us to be aware. And I pray for the Christian today that is hiding the gospel from other people, and they might be being selfish with it. Lord, forgive us for that. We've got this treasure of the gospel in us. Help us to be generous with it. Somebody gave the gospel to me. I thank you so much for my dad showing me from your word how to be saved. I was in a home where Jesus was, Jesus was clearly presented and taught. Lord, may that be true of every home that's represented here today. Would you do your work in our hearts, whatever that might be? We pray this in your name. Amen. Would you?